Hi, I'm Dr. Sonia Whitaker, host of the Sonia Whitaker Podcast 2.0. Students know more, that children know more than we think. And I believe that because there's been so many times as school district official that I have visited schools and have become absolutely convinced that our results on the standardized test do not mirror, do not reflect their intellectual capabilities. I'll suggest that we should pause for a moment as educators and ask ourselves, what role do we play as educators in making that happen? In June of 2019, California made headlines for becoming the first state to outlaw the discrimination of individuals. Doing what we can do together. What I'm most proud of for our district, and I know I'm not alone in this, is we have worked together. Unintentionally would serve as counterproductive to supporting all children, and more specifically, black children, in reaching their fullest uh, intellectual potential. New York City schools, particularly as it related to the number of students of color. The purpose of this podcast is not to admire problems. The purpose of this podcast is to identify issues that are impacting education, either directly or indirectly, and to provide for you recommendations for how to resolve the issues that have been identified so that you may continue about the business of ensuring that all students gain equitable access to a quality education. I want to start out by thanking you for taking the time to tune into this podcast and all others. Um, It is really important for me to take the knowledge the experience that I have and share it publicly for the purpose of making sure that those of us that are doing the work and those of us that are impacted by the work of educators have insight and information from a number of different perspectives about how we might be more effective. You will recall if you follow me on social media that I had the very, very distinct and great honor of conducting a presentation with my colleague and friend. And the topic of that presentation was really focused on microaggressions. And I think it's important to state that very, very often when we think about those things that are occurring in America's public schools that could serve as counterproductive to supporting us in ensuring that all students, and more specifically, children of color and children experiencing the impact of poverty, when we begin to talk about those things, um, I don't believe that we address head on the topic of microaggressions as, as we should. We know that our goal is to ensure that all students reach their fullest intellectual potential. And so with that being said, I I feel that we have a fundamental obligation to stop, I'll say it really and often, and ask ourselves, going back to my initial point, are there things that are occurring in our respective organizations, or in this case school districts or classrooms, 
that could prove to be counterproductive? And, and my answer to that question is yes. And in many ways, it um, falls by way of the implementation of microaggressions. One of the things that I think is important for all of us to understand about microaggressions is that they are not easy to detect or analyze. Please allow me, as I'm sure you're accustomed to me doing, sharing from a practical perspective, right, as an educator and human being, and then always for, from a theoretical perspective for the researchers that follow my work. And so adapted from the NAACP report barrier, entitled Barriers, Root in Race and Gender, Harmful Educational Outcomes, I would like to share with you what they deem to be the definition, operational definition of the term microaggressions. Microaggressions are subtle, verbal, and nonverbal racial insults, indignities, and denigrating messages often automatically and unconsciously directed toward an individual due to their racially, excuse me, due to their racially marginalized identities. It is usually committed by well-intended people who are unaware of the hidden messages committed and the connection to the institutional and the interpersonal manifestations of racism. And I think that one of the most important words are terms to lash on to relevant to the definition that they have provided is unconsciously. And so I don't know about you, but I always move about the universe uh, with the statement in the back of my mind. And that statement is, I don't know what I don't know. And so I think that with that statement in mind and the point that I'm raising relevant to the use of the term unconscious or unconsciously, just know that, again, the purpose of my dialogue and exchange with you is about raising to our conscious level some of those things that we may be doing that move us further away from accomplishing the goal that I have identified with students much further away than we would hope. Microaggressions may be based on social economic status, disability, gender, gender expression or identity, sexual orientation, race, ethnicity, nationality, or religion. These insults or insensitivities may be exhibited by students or adults within a school or school community, and then I'll add, at an unconscious level. And so I remember when um, my colleague and I were conducting this presentation, I must admit, a few weeks ago, I found it interesting, not surprising, but interesting when the members of the audience would say things like they had never thought about the extent to which they may be unconsciously demonstrating a microaggression towards someone based on their disability. More often, for those of us who are conscious of the term microaggressions and the fact that they are occurring, very often think about demonstrating a microaggression toward another human being based on their race, or in some cases based on 
the color of their skin, maybe based on their sexual orientation or a religion, but not often enough recognizing that we can demonstrate microaggressions towards someone who has a disability. And in fact, during this presentation, we had a member of the audience who had a dis who has rather a disability and spoke very passionately about some of the microaggressions that are demonstrated toward her on a regular basis. And so I would encourage us to be aware and very sensitive of the extent to which we may be doing so unintentionally. With regards to microaggressions in the school or the classrooms, studies show that microaggressions affect students of color very differently. For example, Asians are often, very, very often viewed as the model minority, and Black students and Latino students are often viewed as lesser than, discouraged from joining advanced level classes, and attributed unfair discipline and lower grades due to racial discrimination. And this theoretical term or definition that I'm providing for you came directly from an article written by Microaggressions in the Classroom is the title uh, produced by the University of Denver's Center for Multicultural Excellence. And so again, I know that many of us are probably familiar with the microaggression that would suggest that because a student is Asian American, that they are naturally more gifted, more gifted, more intellectually capable of achieving than black students. And so as we go and continue to do the work and we began to analyze the practices that are occurring within our school that increase or decrease the likelihood that students are going to be successful academically, we want to do so with this thought process in mind as it relates to examining, again, those things that are occurring. I would actually like to raise our consciousness about the fact that uh, there are actually three types of microaggressions. And so what I have found is those of us that are conscious of microaggressions kind of leave it at the initial definition that I provided. But I want to go a little bit deeper in this particular podcast, again, and suggest that there are three types of microaggressions. And the three types of microaggressions as described in my racial microaggressions in everyday life are micro insults, micro assaults, and micro invalidations. Micro insults are usually unconscious and they convey rudeness or insensitivity. Micro assaults are often very, very conscious in terms of how they are conducted, in terms of the psyche of the person that are demonstrating micro assaults and they are deliberate as opposed to micro invalidations which are usually unconscious and may exclude the thoughts the feelings and the experiences of a minority group and so let me talk very briefly about micro insults um, as has been indicated micro insults are characterized by communications that convey rudeness or insensitivity toward another group. And an example for the purpose of growing all of us is that micro insults represent a, like a subtle snub, if you will. For an example, 
when an employee tells a prospective candidate of color, I believe the most qualified person should get the job, regardless of your race. Or when a person of color is asked, how did you get your job? It is important to recognize that the underlying message may be twofold, that people of color are not qualified and that as a member of a minority group, you must have gotten the job through some affirmative action or quota and not because of your intellectual ability. And so those would be very, very concrete examples of micro insults that I want to make sure that we're aware of as we go about our leadership roles in terms of interacting with others. Micro assaults um, can be described as referring to someone, for example, deliberately as colored or oriental. And so micro assaults are characterized primarily by a verbal or nonverbal attack and is meant to hurt the intended victim through name calling or purposeful discriminatory actions, again, as described in Microaggressions in Everyday Life by the American Psychologist Organization. Um, deliberately serving a white patron before someone of color or displaying a swastika are all examples of a micro assault. Um, I can tell you that um, as a black woman, I, I can count on so many occasions, uh, instances, and in when I have been really what I would consider to be the victim of a micro assault. And one example would be several months ago when I took a plane ride and airline stewardess was, you know, walking up and down the aisle as, you know, as they do. And I asked her how to get on the internet. I was having a very difficult time doing so. And ironically, it was actually moments after I heard her provide for another woman, white woman in this case, uh, information on how to get online because apparently the um, airline was having difficulty with service. And so essentially we all needed help. When the white airline students got to me and I posed the same question to her, she immediately said, made a comment that was a bit of a snub and really suggested that she didn't have time or that I should be able to figure it out by myself. And and sitting next to me was a, a young white girl. I don't know. She couldn't have been 12 years old. Her parents were in the back of the plane. And based on how the airline stewards interacted with me, interestingly enough, she looked at me and said, well, that was rude. What just happened? And um, I'll never forget how I wanted to maintain my composure because, again, I one, I know as a Black woman, our reaction always matters, right? And so I have really been practicing my own policy of intentionality as it relates to how I grow um, to respond in instances such as that. I was also very, very conscious of how the little white girl sitting next to me might have perceived me as a result of her interaction with me. But interestingly enough, she came right away to recognize the inappropriateness of the response of the airline stewardess and actually spoke with me about that. And I, I 
I took advantage of the opportunity to tell her uh, the definition of microaggression, obviously being very careful because I wasn't her parent and I didn't want to overdo it. But just to suggest to her that that is what I believe was demonstrated toward me and that I really um, shared with her, I, I elected to take the high road and, and just blow it off. Interestingly enough, I believe that the airline stewardess really caught herself because after she made it um, to about two or three people up the row, she actually turned back around, literally got down almost on her knee, never apologized, but then provided me um, with the information that I needed to be um, successful in, um, in gaining access to the internet. So I won't go on and on about that, but um, the point that I'm making is that as is indicated in the definition of a micro assault, it is um, deliberate and deliberately serving a white patron over a black one or a white woman over providing better service intentionally to a, say in this case, white woman over a black woman. Uh, that's problematic. And how that airline student might have then developed some level of consciousness about her actions, I do not know. Um, but I do know she attempted to rectify the situation. And I thought that this would be a good opportunity for me to provide you, again, a concrete example. And then there's micro-invalidations. Um, as, in, as has been indicated, micro-invalidations are characterized by communications that exclude, negate, or nullify the psychological thoughts, feelings, or experiential reality of persons of color. For example, when Asian Americans born and raised in the U.S. are complimented for speaking good English, which I get that often, uh, Dr. Whitaker, you um, you are extremely articulate. Um, you speak much better than uh, the people of your race. I mean, I sometimes get people to be that very, very direct in terms of using that type of communication toward me. And very often I do have to share with them that what they have committed is a form of micro invalidation for which in some cases they're saying, doc, I'm just trying to, I was just trying to give you a compliment. And that's why I think it's important that um, we do not shy away from conversations such as this, because when we do, we actually, the term I keep going back to, um, are counterproductive in our efforts uh, to relate to one another um, across society and as adults and more specifically counterproductive in our efforts to better relate to students so that they can experience success in school and ultimately success in life. I also deem it necessary and did so during the presentation, statewide presentation, to describe the difference between racism and microaggressions. Racism is the mistreatment of others in part due to the color of their skin. And racism can take place in many forms, and it's always not easy to recognize. In some situations, it can be hidden through language, through the language that people use to disguise their beliefs. And microaggression is also a form of racism. Now, in closing, I'd like to move toward making sure that you are aware of the four levels of racism as described, and I will share with you the reference for this is race forward models. As described in the race forward model, there are four different levels. Um, 
internalized racism that happens within us. This racial bias might play out when we're looking at ourselves in the mirror. For a white person, it could be a feeling of white superiority and power over people of color, as opposed to for a person of color, it could be negative feelings about one's own identity. And so again, when you think of the four levels of racism, the first level I want you to think about is internalized racism, which happens inside of us. And then there is interpersonal relationship, meaning the racism that is demonstrated between us. This is when one individual's personal racial beliefs affects their public interactions with others. And so again, when you think about interpersonal racism, think about our interaction with one another. Sometimes interpersonal racism is unintentional and it is a result of false stereotypes taught to us by society. And so, for example, um, I didn't even, it's amazing when I'm podcasting and I'm not reading a script, things just come up. Like the example that I just gave you about me being on the plane, but another one that just came up, um, which I don't know how often I've said publicly, but with regards to interpersonal racism, it is important for me to recognize that, you know, growing up, I, I made the assumption that all people that were white were rich and wealthy. And that's not easy to share. But it was based on false stereotypes painted before me by the news media, by, um, by television, right? In some cases, in song. Um, every, every outlet in terms of communication mechanism that was demonstrated in my mind, painted white people as being all rich. And so on the flip side of that, far too often, the stereotypes provided to us about people of color, even when someone of color is the victim of viewing, say the media, how they negatively predict far, too often people of color, it's not being wealthy. A limited to no discussion ever in our schools about Black Wall Street. And so the point that I'm making relevant to interpersonal racism and the fact that it happens between us, I want to go back and stress that it is related to very often false negative stereotypes taught to us um, by society, which causes us to act um, in one way negatively toward one another. And then there is structural racism, and it is among institutions and society. It results from a long history of racial bias, which can be hard to see because it is embedded in our institutions and our policies. Um, I think it is important to recognize that we see structural racism when we look at the history of home ownership, where people of color are voter disenfranchisement, the racial wealth gap, and other micro trends of racial inequity. For the purpose of this particular podcast, as you move forward beyond the sound of my voice on the day that you elect to listen to this, I would like to focus on institutional racism, which is the fourth level of racism for which I'm describing. This occurs when institutions create, maintain, 
and enforce policies and practices rooted in racial inequity, creating adverse results for people of color. An example of this would be a school policy banning uh, hairstyles common to people that identify as black. And so if you're a school board member, I'd like you to lean in on this conversation that I'm having with you and make a commitment, as I always recommend to you, examining your school board policies to and for the extent to which, to learn of the extent rather to which you may be as an institutional engaging into institutional racism, which serves as counterproductive, as is indicated, banning hairstyles would be an example. Many of us are familiar with the the wrestler, the high school wrestler who was in the middle of the match of his life and right dead smack in the middle of the match, the referee called him to the side and insisted that he cut his dreads and suggested that the, the style or the length of his dreads was um, out of alignment with policy for what the black male student could have. And so that student experienced trauma before his family and before his peers' very eyes having to literally cut his dreads in the middle of that wrestling match. So take just one moment to listen to another example of a microaggression related to skin tone, which is um, a personal, another personal experience that I had. And you will be able to hear directly from me who spoke of this um, as I provided an example for the school board members from across the state of Illinois uh, during my uh, presentation. Because she recognized that the darker your skin was, the more likely you were to be discriminated against. And I was hesitant to share this one story, but I'm asking you to be real, so I'll be real too. I remember being the lone candidate for the superintendency in a school district, a high school district, where the board was all white males. And they really were trying to be culturally competent. They had decided that they wanted a superintendent that better reflected their community, which happened to be black. But it is on the record that they chose the lighter-skinned black woman because they felt that a lighter-skinned black woman would be less intimidating to the people. This is real talk. You will also recall um, this, another student who was actually banned from wearing his ROTC uniform because black student, male again in this case, because of his hair because of the braids or the locks in his hair. And um, I've had an opportunity to interview his mother uh, in my role. And um, as National Education Policy Director for Push for Excellence, um, I think it was about a year and a half ago, when we conducted a town hall discussion and she was on that town hall discussion talking about her advocacy for her child, which in it is my understanding has resulted in some changes at the uh, junior ROTC level relevant to their expectations for hair for the purpose of better ensuring that the organization does not engage in, again, here, what is referred to as institutional racism. Another and final example I want to give of that is many of you know I actually graduated from high school in Anchorage, Alaska, and so this story is near and dear to my heart. In this case, it was not a black male student, but a high school uh, multiracial a female student who 
was banned from swimming in her match. I believe she was disqualified from her swim match, of which she was recognized as one of the best in the state because of how her body fit the bathing suit. So in this case, it was a school-issued swimsuit that she was to use for competition, but because of the shape of her body, the swimsuit had a tendency to rise. And she was disqualified um, by a referee who implemented or referred to a policy, once again, a form of institutional racism that really lent itself toward body shaming, which is counterproductive. We want our students to be astute uh, athletically. We want our students to be astute academically. But when we implement policies that keep them from achieving, in this case, athletically, that presents for us a problem. And so I'd like to close in the way that I began, which is making sure that we recognize that we are very clear about those things that are occurring within our respective organizations that could prove counterproductive to supporting us in achieving the goal of ensuring that all students gain equitable access to a quality education. Thank you for listening to the Sonya Whitaker Podcast 2.0. You can follow Sonya on all social media platforms at Sonya Whitaker, S-O-N-Y-A-W-H-I-T-A-K-E-R. Also, you can access her podcasts on her website, SonyaWhitaker.com. Click on live and on-demand radio to listen to previous podcast episodes.